Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. B. Timothy Walsh, faculty member at the Columbia University Medical Center, uh, where he established the Eating Disorders Research Unit at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. He's currently the Ruane Professor of Pediatric Psychopharmacology in the Department of Psychiatry at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University and Director of the Division of Clinical Therapeutics at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. One of the world leaders on eating disorders, uh, Dr. Walsh has pioneered uh, both diagnostic and treatment advances in the eating disorders and uh, is widely recognized for his work. He's a past president of the Academy of Eating Disorders and of the Eating Disorders Research Society. So Tim, welcome. Thank you very much. So let's start by giving people a sense of how common the eating disorders are. And I know you'd like to make a distinction between different types of eating disorders. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important in talking about eating disorders uh, to note that there are several uh, types. And it's important to distinguish them for a for a variety of reasons. But the ones that are classically defined are anorexia nervosa, probably the best known and uh, best characterized, um, bulimia nervosa, uh, and binge, the most recently defined eating disorder is binge eating disorder. Could you quickly tell us how they differ from one another? So the, the, the characteristics are <clears throat> uh, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa are similar in many ways. They both tend to occur in young women, uh, uh, developing in adolescence, early adulthood. But the, the key distinction is folks with anorexia nervosa are by definition significantly underweight. That's an illness that drives people to maintain uh, low and often dangerously low body weights. Bulimia is characterized by binge eating and purging, typically self-induced vomiting, in normal weight or somewhat above normal weight individuals. These are very similar uh, disorders, but the difference, and probably related to the low weight of anorexia nervosa, the differences are of great importance. And what are the the respective uh, rates of these things in the population? Um, It goes, the, the rates go up in the order that I, I mentioned them. So anorexia nervosa has been around a long time, um, but remains a relatively uncommon illness. Um, it probably affects, even over a lifetime, uh, a percent of women in the United States um, and a tenth as many men. So men do get it, but they get it rarely, and women get it uncommonly. And I'm here. I'm referring to really serious, classic anorexia nervosa. So, if you one in a hundred over a lifetime might have the problem, that's not a great likelihood of any one person getting it. Correct. There's a lot of people in the society it, it, who have exactly, it. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, it is an epidemic, um, uh, and um, you know, it's it's uncommon, but it's not trivial. Um, and every major medical center uh, encounters folks with anorexia nervosa. So it's uncommon, um, but far from unknown. And the rates of bulimia? Bulimia is a bit higher. Bulimia, uh, binge eating and purging, that's probably 1%, 2%, sort of single-digit percents. Um, and and so that's a, it's more commonly seen. And then binge eating disorder? Binge eating disorder is is 
different in a number of ways. So this is, as it sounds, it's binge eating without purging. And uh, it turns out this is most frequently identified in middle-aged folk uh, and almost equal numbers of men and women. So men certainly get this in, in significant numbers. Um, the frequency is probably uh, like three, two, three, four percent over a lifetime. Um, not enormous, but far from trivial. This, this binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder. Um, are, is there any evidence about whether rates are going up or down? It's hard to know is the, is the place to start. <clears throat> um, the, particularly the classic eating disorders, the ones that have been recognized the longest, anorexia nervosa and bulimia, are uncommon enough that it's very hard technically to track rates over time. Um, my sense is that they have been, the rates have been persistent and haven't changed dramatically in the last quarter century, 30 years. Um, so sometimes there are reports that there's an explosion or an epidemic. I don't think the limited data that we have support that. Um, they haven't increased dramatically in frequency, and they certainly haven't disappeared. Um, so I, they're, I would say they're basically stable. Now, having said that, the caveat is there could be uh, important um, small changes in frequency that we just can't detect. Okay, so I'd like to talk about the causes and, and what we know about treating these problems. So why don't we start with anorexia? And before we talk about causes, you had briefly alluded to the fact that it's a pretty serious problem yeah. for people to have. And there's some mortality rate from this, yeah. I know. Can you paint a little bit of a picture about how serious the problem sure. this can be? Anorexia nervosa, as I indicated, is the sort of the best-known, longest formally recognized uh, eating disorder. Uh, so it's been with us uh, for hundreds of years, uh, literally. Um, and over that time, it's always been recognized and still is as a potentially life-threatening uh, behavioral psychiatric problem. Um, people continue to die of anorexia nervosa. In fact, um, it is almost certainly uh, has a mortality rate associated with it that's high as the mortality associated with any psychiatric illness. That, the, if you want a number, <clears throat> the, the number of people um, typically use is of 100 people um, who have serious anorexia nervosa today, in the next 10 years, uh, roughly uh, five of them will die of the illness, either by starvation or by suicide. Okay, so that's a pretty alarming number. It's a, it is a very alarming number, uh, and it, it's one of the reasons that I think a number of investigators and the National Institutes of Health remain um, concerned and focused on improving our understanding and treatment of it. Yeah, so we certainly would be in the best interest of uh, people who might have this to understand what's causing it. Indeed. What do we know about that? Unfortunately, as is the case with many psychiatric illnesses, uh, we don't know a great deal about cause. Um, uh, we certainly don't know specific causes. Uh, I mean, the proof is <clears throat> you can't walk into a grade school and pick out, um, you know, the 10 kids who have a 50% chance of getting anorexia nervosa. We can't do anything like that. 
which means we can't determine the specific cause. We can identify things that increase risk, um, like being a woman, um, uh, being in a society where food is plentiful and thinness is um, uh, valued. Um, certainly genes are important. There's no question genetic influences uh, uh, increase or decrease uh, vulnerability, but no one's found a gene for anorexia nervosa, and I think there's skepticism that any such gene exists. So let me ask you a question about the genetic vulnerability. What might be specifically be inherited? Would it be personality characteristics? Would it be some medical profile that places a person at risk? People speculate about what the genetic factor or, uh, or factors, almost certainly factors, might be, and the things that you uh, alluded to have been proposed. Um, for example, um, perhaps a predisposition um, to perfectionism, uh, uh, perhaps a little predisposition to anxiety um, m- might be factors. Um, people have speculated that folks who develop anorexia nervosa may be better able to lose weight. Uh, they may be better able for whatever combination of uh, metabolic and other reasons um, to uh, restrict their diets and to lose weight. Maybe they have some biological um, advantage uh, in that regard. So there are a range of characteristics um, that um, that might that sensibly m- might be inherited um, that would increase chances. Okay. So if I understand right, then the we can look at broad causes of eating disorders or contributors to them at least like social preoccupation with thinness etc um but it's very hard to identify individuals who might be absolutely okay so that become that makes it even more important to be able to treat these things effectively when people have them what do we know about treatment of anorexia yeah anorexia nervosa um can be tough to treat no question um However, in, in talking about treatment, it's, it's crucial to emphasize that full recovery is possible. This is a psychiatric illness, which is not necessarily a chronic illness. People can get absolutely better in every way, psychologically, behaviorally, physically. Therefore, treatment is very important. Um, there are, there's evidence, it's, it's short of absolute proof, but there's good evidence that, uh, as for many disorders, early intervention is key. Um, uh, many folks think, and uh, I'm one of them, that if we can prevent this illness from becoming chronic, from becoming established, if we can help people get out of the this um, behavioral pattern of dieting, 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 losing weight, and feeling good about it, if we can break that uh, early before it takes deep root, uh, we have a better chance of helping them uh, make full recoveries. Is, is patient inpatient treatment usually the standard for this? Uh, there's a range of treatments, um, and that's that's certainly changed over time in, you know, in, in the last few decades. Uh, particularly um, with younger people, uh, adolescence and soon after onset, again, emphasizing again the early intervention perspective, um, there is good data to support the involvement of parents as active treatment agents. 
uh, and this is in stark contrast to the uh, historical view of uh, parents um, and uh, how they were inappropriately involved, or it was inappropriate to involve them much in treatment. That's been pretty much reversed. Um, and there are good data to suggest that getting parents involved very actively in helping kids um, overcome anorexia nervosa is effective in the short term and does not require, does not require hospitalization. Now hospitalization, uh, to jump to hospitalization, can be indicated sort of for two reasons. <clears throat> One, this is an illness where medical problems uh, do occur. And as weight uh, drops and medical problems develop or the risk of medical problems increases, um, hospitalization may be indicated, uh, perhaps just short term to, to reverse an acute weight loss. Um, but certainly for people who haven't been able to uh, make enough progress as outpatients, inpatient treatment remains a, um, a steadfast, well-established intervention. Are medications of any help? Remarkably, um, medications have not been proven to be of significant benefit. There is some recent interest in whether um, uh, neuroleptic antipsychotic agents, which um, are known to be associated with weight gain and a lot of weight gain-related complications in folks with um, psychotic illness, maybe these medications might be helpful for individuals with anorexia nervosa to help them gain weight, at least some, and perhaps to help them um, with their thinking and level of anxiety. But that's early. The, we have some, we have a couple of studies suggesting potential benefit, but it's early to conclude that it is helpful. Is there any reason to believe, turning our attention to bulimia nervosa for the moment, that the causative factors are any different? Um, I think our knowledge of the causes of bulimia is similar to that of anorexia. Um, that is, we don't know much. We know sort of gen general risk factors, but not specific causal pathways. Um, the, um, uh, one of the things that's interesting is there are now a couple of uh, pieces of data that suggest that probably <clears throat> There was a spike in the development of bulimia um, 30 years ago, around 1980, rough, roughly around 1980, that some factors may have led to a, a probably rather sudden increase in the occurrence of cases of bulimia. And over the last 30 years, the frequency of cases has probably begun to decline. Again, this is an uncommon illness, so it's hard to be sure of that, but there are a couple of studies now that suggest so. So what that implies about cause, almost certainly, is there's something in the environment um, that has contributed to bulimia. Now, what that is uh, is very hard to put your finger on. Um, contagion? Um, I mean, what pops into my mind is that I don't know that I think that's about the time the newspaper started writing about it. And oh, yeah. Identified. So oh, sure. my sense is it gave people the idea sure. where they might not have occurred to them before. Yeah, I think that's true. 
uh, I mean, I, I think your observation is is accurate. Uh, again, we have no proof, but it's I think it's a perfectly valid speculation that you know, 30 years ago it was sort of unknown, and it suddenly burst on the scene. It got a lot of publicity. There was talk about epidemics of bulimia, and one wonders whether that spike in publicity may have contributed to people who were in some ways vulnerable to developing this behavioral pattern. And once a certain group in the school, say, had developed the pattern, maybe their friends would learn about the pattern. So that's a uh, that's plausible, um, but we don't know. And maybe as you know, as, as bulimia has become better known and become less newsworthy, as as, as the existence of an illness, it may have faded. It's possible. And you and, and your colleagues have done some of the most important treatment studies on bulimia, nervosa. What is the state-of-the-art treatment now for this, and is there reason to be optimistic about success rates? Yes, but, I mean, one of the good things about, um, if you will, about the spike in the occurrence in bulimia 30 years ago is it attracted uh, good scientific attention. Um, because 30 years ago, since we knew almost nothing about it, there were no clear established ways to treat it. But fortunately, over that time, several good and effective methods of treatment have been developed. The leading two um, are cognitive behavior therapy, a therapeutic approach that actually is broadly useful for a number of psychiatric conditions. Uh, But cognitive behavior therapy, which was originally developed for the treatment of depression, has been very successfully adapted to the treatment of bulimia and clearly is effective. It takes work on the patient's part. They've got to come to sessions. They've got to do homework. Um, But a a treatment program of three to six months, um, if patients work at it, work with the therapist, uh, are very effective in uh, eliminating symptoms. And uh, many patients uh, make full recoveries just with that. The other treatment uh, method that has real, hard, solid support is the use of antidepressant medication. Um, there are 15 to 20 studies, virtually all of which document benefit from antidepressants. Um, the medication that got the best study a number of years ago now, but uh, there's no reason to think those, those results aren't still valid, um, were, uh, was uh, fluoxetine or Prozac, and that uh, medication, which is usually thought of as an antidepressant, um, is uh, the only medication approved in the U.S. by the FDA for the treatment of bulimia. So it's a curious um, finding that the antidepressants or, or medications at all would be effective for bulimia but not anorexia. Why would that be the case? That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, uh, so we don't know. Um, a speculation is, and, and what's even more provocative is that um, many individuals, maybe a third of individuals with bulimia, have past histories of anorexia nervosa, yet there's no evidence that that past history makes them less likely to respond to Prozac. So that's, that's a real conundrum, real uh, uncertainty or lack of knowledge that would be wonderful to, to, to probe. 
So again, I don't know. I speculate um, that something weight-related, that there's something about the significant weight loss that uh, interferes with the brain's uh, ability to respond to fluoxetine and other antidepressants in the way that is required for response, um, for clinical response. Um, What that is, how that works, we just don't know. But um, I think it's the best explanation. And, you know, you could imagine uh, wondering whether a requirement for response to fluoxetine might be, or other antidepressants might be, if someone had anorexia nervosa, to get back to normal weight, stay there for some months, and maybe at that moment, uh, the, after that length of time, they would become more responsive to antidepressants. Um, that's an interesting idea, but it's at the moment it's purely speculative. So why don't we end with uh, the following question? I'm sure there will be people who will be listening who might be affected by some of these issues themselves or will know people. Where do you get help? How do you, are there resources out there for people? And if you're in some various parts of the U.S., how do you f- go about getting good help? Sure. Uh, it is a, is a great question. Um, the, the way I would always start thinking about getting help was first check with your general physician. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about eating disorders, and they're usually pretty straightforward to recognize, but um, it's, always, it's important both to um, be sure it's not something else, some uh, physical problem that's masquerading as an eating disorder. Uncommon, but does occur. And we've already discussed that these eating disorders can have physical complications, and it's always important to uh, check for them. So I think always the place to start is with a general physician or pediatrician if it's, we're talking about a youngster. Um, if it is an eating disorder, then um, I think the, the next step is to try to identify an eating disorder specialist in the community. There really is a specific knowledge, specialized knowledge about the treatment of these disorders, which isn't as um, well known by many mental health practitioners. And like with most things, um, uh, practice helps. The more people you treat, typically, the better you get at treating it. So finding a professional um, whose experience with eating disorders is the next step. Um, Now, often that's hard because these are uncommon illnesses, um, and often it's hard to find these people. Um, uh, Ways to do that include um, uh, looking at the nearest uh, medical centers, and see what they might have. Um, uh, There are resources on the web. The Academy for Eating Disorders is the biggest um, organization across the world of eating disorder professionals, and they have a a resource on their website which allows you to put in your location and see who might be in your area. Um, And I would mention that our, uh, our research center at Columbia, the Columbia Eating Disorders Program, um, uh, is happy both to help people and as a research program, we provide some services um, that might be of use to people even who are not in New York. Oh, good, good. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really nice to have you discuss this important topic. Thank you. 
So our guest today was Dr. B. Timothy Walsh, professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and internationally known accomplished expert on the issue of eating disorders. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, and you'll find a variety of resources there on food and food policy issues, including links to other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent visitors to the Rudd Center. Thank you.